you're new to this stuff, that's the last book of the Bible. And just FYI, it's Revelation, not Revelations. And uh, we've been studying the book of Revelation. This fall, we took a break for Advent. We looked at Old and New Testament passages where we reflected on God becoming a man, what we celebrate at Christmas. And then I was out for a couple of Sundays. Jake did some other things. And uh, I want to get back into Revelation. So we're picking up pretty much where we left off. We, we went to the end of chapter 13 uh, before we took a break. And so we're picking up toward the beginning of chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, the, the passage I'm going to preach from is there in the order of worship. You can follow there. If, if, uh, if you have started coming, even like during this, this break where we haven't been studying Revelation, again, I want to say welcome. Very glad you're here. That means a lot to us, and uh, we hope you'll be able to visit some more. Let me say just a few words about Revelation, just to kind of back to square one, to get, get up over this. Number one, and, and I think this is one of the most fundamental, helpful observations about the book I can give as far as intro goes. And Revelation is notoriously confusing and throws people curveballs. So here's, here's thing one I would throw out. The first phrase in the book of Revelation is... Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and this is written by John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, the same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, one of the apostles, same John. When he writes the opener, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's not writing the title. He's writing the topic. He's telling you the thesis of the book. The book is not so that you will get wrapped around the axle at news that a skirmish broke out here or there was a bombing there or someone invaded someone else. It is not, it's not the decoder ring for news. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. And if you find that you get more worked up about what Iran or Syria or something like, or what the UN is doing more than Jesus, something's wrong. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. The genre of revelation is what's called apocalyptic. And that means it uses really vivid images and almost exclusively ones drawn from the Old Testament. We've referred back to the Old Testament, I think, every sermon. So they're not just out of the blue, in other words. You find these, these prior echoes, if that's the right way to put it, uh, in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Uh, just like this morning, we've got a passage. It has three angels in it. In this particular text, I don't want you to feel so compelled to say, all right, what does angel one stand for? And what does angel two stand for? And let's get a beat on that angel three. Uh, apocalyptic literature is throwing very vivid images. Now, some we have to unpack, but it's not an allegory. It's showing us things about Jesus Christ in the gospel. And, and before I read it, I really want to say something about that. Almost at the beginning of this passage, an angel is going to fly overhead. And this is Revelation, so you get stuff like that. An angel is going to fly overhead. And John says, as he flies overhead, he's proclaiming the gospel. Okay, so you're waiting for this gospel. But here's the thing. This is a fire and brimstone passage. Uh, the word brimstone, is that, that's the old-fashioned word, kind of the King James Bible word for sulfur. And, uh, you know, you hear about fire and brimstone preaching. There's not a lot of passages, actually, in the Bible that, that talk about fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone. But Re Revelation 14 actually is one of those. So, here we go. 
But here's what I here's here's what I want you to see. And this, I really pr- we've prayed about this. I, I've prayed about it. Jake and I prayed about this this morning. Is that the gospel, the good news? Not good news to people that get their act together. Good news to sinful people. Good news and the biblical realities of what is said about hell. <clears throat> those don't have to run from each other. In fact, there are things about hell we have to understand if we're going to understand the good news. There are things about hell that we need to understand if we understand why, if we're going to understand why heaven is heaven. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead <clears throat> with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, and there's text that we we find ourselves opening on Sunday morning, and... uh, if not easy, then, then they're extremely uh, appealing to, to go to. There's, there's so much comfort and there's so much assurance. Uh, but this speaks about very hard realities. And it's not as if we need your help any less on those other Sundays than we do this morning, but we, we do need your help to rightly hear hard things. But even if we hear them, then not to go out and do the wrong things with them but for these hard things to lead us to good news. And uh, we're asking you to do that in our midst, however we come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Habig family moved to Greenville May of 2005 to be a part of this church plant called Downtown Prez. And um, so the summer of 2005 was our first summer in Greenville. And I remember toward the end of that first August when we were, uh, Jake was talking about from early days, this is 
when we were worshiping um, at the Poinsett Hotel downtown up in the Gold Room. And uh, the news was that Katrina was coming. And my wife and I are both from Mississippi, and so um, we didn't live on the Gulf Coast, but obviously we, we, we had a real interest not only as Americans, but because it was headed, it flooded Louisiana, but it was headed for Mississippi, and it ended up going through Mississippi. And so, uh, in fact, she had family here that Sunday, the day before it hit, and I remember praying about that during worship, and uh, one of her family was, was in tears because just kind of what was coming, and they were driving back that day to it. So um, early the next morning, excuse me, that afternoon, I was watching the Weather Channel. A lot of people were. And uh, Jim Cantori, who's always just right there in the thick of it, is on the Gulf Coast. He's in Biloxi. And uh, so, you know, they're going back and forth between him and Biloxi and the kind of the Weather Channel headquarters. And they said, what are you seeing there, Jim? And this is really vivid. And I remember being struck by it even when I saw it. He said, what I'm seeing concerns me. And you look over his shoulder, and it's a beautiful day in Biloxi. Why? Because anything that would make a day not beautiful has been just completely grouped to the south. Wind, moisture, darkness, clouds is to the south. So he's standing there, and behind him you see people walking on the beach like it is any beautiful day on the beach. I mean, people walking their dogs and throwing frisbee. It is hours away from hitting. And Jim Cantori said... The people I'm seeing on the beach do not have a sense of urgency. They don't understand that this time tomorrow, the topography of this beach is going to change. And it did. And, you know, growing up in Mississippi, what you always heard about as far as hurricanes and, and, uh, you know, damaging uh, hurricanes was Camille that hit in the 60s. But we knew that Katrina was bigger than Camille But that afternoon, that day, even when you can see the big swirl on the radar, it just didn't feel, at least for some folks, like there is complete urgency and we've got to respond. But whether they felt it or not, it came. It changed changed everything. Our our lives uh, in a fallen world is fallen people We are like people on that beach. And I think that's especially the case if you've got a pretty good life. I know there's always people that have a worse life than us, but I mean, you really might have quite a good life. I mean, health, income, opportunities, intelligence, and, and the people that you spend time with. It's difficult to feel just like sitting here in a room in 2013 that there's something coming that's going to change everything. And neither the prophets nor the apostles nor the Son of God ever shrunk from making this very clear that at the end of history, because the biblical view of history is not that it's cyclical and it's just kind of repeating itself. It's It's, it's linear. And that history is working toward at least an initial conclusion, and there's all this stuff after it. But at that conclusion, there is judgment. And believe me when I say, I know it's jarring to even talk about these things. It's jarring to stand up and read a a text with words like wrath, 
sulfur, torment. But again, there it is. And, and what I'm struck by, and many people have been struck by, and I kind of want you to be struck by this, is that if you take the Scripture seriously, then the most loving man who ever lived was Jesus of Nazareth, was Jesus Christ. I mean, no one went to bat for the marginalized. No one went to bat for women. No one went to bat for the poor. No one went to, to bat for the people who were the outcast and the overtly bad people. No one loved them like he did, and they responded accordingly. And no one was as explicit about things like wrath and judgment and hell. So we just can't be. Uh, I think there's all kinds of ways to come at this text, but I want to just boil it down to two big things. I want to look at what this text says about hell and what it says about heaven. It's not, it's not exhaustive about either one, but let's look at what this passage says about hell and about heaven. Before we do that, just two things to hit on. Again, if, if, if you haven't been here and haven't heard this study as we've gone, one thing to think about is this. It mentioned the beast... And I don't know how that landed with you. Maybe you've heard of the mark of the beast or the number of the beast. This is the stuff that weirds people out about Revelation. But think about this. At the end of Revelation 13, we're in 14 this morning. At the end of 13, it talks about people who are in rebellion against God. They don't align themselves with God. Have the beast's mark on them. And this is apocalyptic, so don't think, what is that? In, you know, computer chips embedded under skin. Don't do that. It's a mark of identity. And there's something else you need to know, and we talked about this toward the end. Throughout Revelation, you see evil counterfeiting what God does. So if God has a lamb, Jesus, then there's a beast who has horns like a lamb. If there's this beautiful woman who represents the people of God in biblical history, then there's this beautiful, alluring, dangerous, enticing woman of Babylon who will draw you. There's good and there's the counterfeit. The beast is a counterfeit of the lamb. There are people who have a mark that they do not belong to the lamb, they belong to the beast. Chapter 14 begins with God putting a seal on the forehead of his people. So whether you call it seal or mark or whatever, here's what I want you to think. It's saying, <clears throat> biblically speaking, there is no neutrality. And yes, we can have, um, we can have civil discourse. And yes, we can try to, whatever your viewpoint, be tolerant with one another. But ultimately, from a biblical vantage point, there is no neutrality the mark means identity. In the words of Jesus, those who aren't with them are against him. What does the text say about uh, hell and what does it say about heaven? Again, this is not exhaustive, but what, what does the passage let us see? A few things. Um, in fact, let's say, let's say four things about hell. First off, it is judgment. And that, that's a technical term. It's judgment... Second, it's, it's emotional. I mean, God's emotions. Third, it's everlasting. And fourth, it is in the, in the presence of Jesus. All right, first off, it's judgment. Look in verse 7. This angel, and again, this is part of 
getting people to understand the gospel. This is not the whole of the gospel. It's not the whole of the good news. But in verse 7, the angel says, loud where everybody can hear it, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, I know that. I mean, when people talk about hell, they talk about judgment. But let's make sure we're on the same page with our terms. Judgment means that hell is motivated by divine fairness. It's it's motivated by divine justice. It is not motivated by cruelty. And and I've said this uh, on numerous occasions. If God were cruel, we would know it. Believe me, we'd feel it in our body and soul. It's driven by Him saying that I must be just And that part of being just is that there are consequences for breaches of His divine law. All His divine law is good. And it is for man's good. And it reflects what He is like. But to break it is to incur His judgment. And that is cover to cover in the Bible. That's not just an Old Testament deal. Second, it's emotional. And really, in some ways, that's different than what we want to see in in human law courts and human justice. If you have, you know, a judge in an American court, he or she may give, she may render a verdict, but we don't want that judge to just become, like, volatile emotionally. We want them to just, I guess we'd use the word professional, be just and enforce the law, Right? And it's not that God is ever... God's God's feelings never run away from Him. God doesn't have what we would call passions, where His feelings just override His character. But He has emotions. And look in verse 10 for how it describes what His judgment is like. Verse 10. It's describing the person marked with the beast who, who doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. It says, He also, that person will drink the wine of God's wrath or anger, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And what what John is recording there is this angel drawing from an Old Testament image. Shows up in the prophets, shows up in Psalms, where there's two cups that God offers people. Uh, now, the cup you want is the cup of blessing. The, when we get the children together to sing before Sunday school, we've been learning Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and you know, this beautiful part of that psalm is where it says, my cup overflows. That's the cup of God's blessing. That's the one we want. Any, anybody would want that. But there is another cup. And it's the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of His anger. And and it's a metaphor to drive home. God is emotionally invested in His creation. He's not the parent who says, well, you know what? It's just, it is taking too much out of me to be emotionally invested with you. So look, you do with your life what you want to, and I'm going to walk away. That's not a loving parent. It is the loving parent who can get the most upset about the child that he or she most loves. God is the ultimate. He is emotionally invested in the creation that He made, and not just the earth and the rocks and the trees, but He ultimately in people who bear His image. And yes, if we trample on His laws, 
If we say, I don't need you and I don't need your people and I don't need your gospel. Or to quote the bumper sticker, I don't need to be born again. I was born fine the first time. He is emotionally invested. And what it looks like at the end is extreme anger. Uh, A lot of you would know the name Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pretty well-known pastor, writer, and uh, church planner in New York City in our denomination. And he talked about he was, uh, he was speaking. It wasn't at a church event. or it, it wasn't in a church venue. He was speaking in a Manhattan townhouse and I guess speaking about Christianity. And the topic of hell came up. And I think he was doing some Q&A. And so these two women came up to him afterward and one of them said to him, I, I'm very offended by this whole thing of a God who condemns. I'm very offended by the, just even the concept of a condemning God. And so he asked this woman, why are you not offended by the concept of a forgiving God? And she said, what do you mean? He said, well, okay, think about it. We are Westerners, and there's parts of the Bible that we're drawn to, like we really like the turn the other cheek stuff. We go like, yeah. Peace, love, turn the other cheek. Tie-dyed shirts, I like the whole thing. Easy, easy. We're drawn to the thing of, you know, we're drawn to mercy, compassion, and to forgiving, to forgiving your enemy. Go to the East, at least large portions of the East, and it may be that they are offended by the concept of turning the other cheek. And they're very offended by the thought of forgiving one's enemy and divine retribution seems very rational and makes tons of sense. And what he asked this woman was, are your cultural sensibilities superior to that other person's? And as a good New Yorker, she said, no. He said, well, think about that. I mean, we tend to think that the way I think about things, the way I process things, is normal. The way I feel about things, the way I process things, is rational. But we come to this as Westerners. And so when we hear about a God who condemns, a God who enacts justice, it rubs us the wrong way. Our sensibilities are not determinative. What about the everlasting part? Did you see that in verse, uh, verse 11? And y'all, again, it's, it's tough. Verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment, the people, goes up forever and ever. And this is not a fun expository observation to make, but that means that whether, whether this speaks of literal fire or that's a metaphor to relay other realities, that means that if smoke continues forever, the fuel continues forever. The fuel is the people. And then if that weren't clear, then here's the next phrase. They have no rest day or night. And on and on and on they have no rest day or night because they continue to exist in this place. That's incredibly tough to hear. But I want you to think about this. And and, and if you have more questions about this, I'd love to talk with you. We can't cover everything in one sermon, but let me make an observation. You know, we look at that and go, okay, good night. If a 20-year-old person, let's say a 24-year-old man, 20-year-old man, if he committed a, a just 
horrible murder and was found guilty and convicted of a life sentence. And let's say, let's say he lived to be 100 years old. So he spends the other 80 years in prison and then he dies. At least the sentence is finite, you know? After 80 years, which is a long time, at least it ends. But you're talking about judgment that never ends. How can that be good? How can that be fair? And here's the thing. Hell takes very seriously the fact that whether you know Christ or you don't, whether you follow Christ or not, God has put eternity into your heart, which means that after death, ultimately, all of us continue on as body-soul entities. Why is that so important? It's important because this side of death, if God does not do something about our guilt, about our need for cleansing and forgiveness. And if God doesn't do something to go into us and change our nature, if we die in that state, death does not change our nature. So what does that mean? That means that for the person who does not receive redemption before death, when God resurrects that person and they go into judgment as body and soul... Nothing about their nature has changed, which means their actions, their thoughts, their feelings continue to incur judgment. But now the difference is no opportunity to be redeemed. And by the way, that is why the Bible yells from the rooftops, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. The last painful thing to point out is this. We don't talk about this much. Verse, uh, the end of verse 10. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. We tend to think of the experience of hell being where you can't even see Jesus. And according to Revelation, you can. And this is the second time really, that it is said that. Because earlier in chapter 6, we looked at a passage where people, when when this hurricane comes of wrath, they're crying out for the rocks to fall on them and cover them. Why do they want the rocks to cover them? To save us from the wrath of whom? The Lamb. Uh, In another time, in another place, when I was single... I lived uh, in a house with a couple of guys, and one of them, he would bring this up semi-regularly, a girl that he broke up with, and he just regretted it. I mean, he would just say, biggest mistake I ever made. And he had a photo album with all these pictures of her, and he would get the photo album out and look at the pictures. I mean, it's bad enough that you broke up. And she did get married to someone else, so, you know, zoop, take that, you know, that option's off the table. But it was almost like you're just, you're just fueling your torment by looking at what you cannot have. And I don't think that we can say that the only source of the torment is this. But part of the torment of falling under the wrath of God is that you can see one who could have been lamb. And for his people remains lamb. But to you is angry God. 
That is awful in the truest sense of the word. May we move on? Because the text speaks about heaven. Um, Let's make parallel points. It's a place with no judgment. It's a place where God is emotionally invested. It's a place that lasts forever. And in particular, where rest lasts forever. And where Jesus is present. First off, um, why are the people in heaven not receiving um, judgment? Is it because heaven finally opened its doors and said, whew, finally, the good people can come in and not have to live with the bad people, thank God, and as soon as the last one's in, we are bolting the door. Why is there a lamb? In the biblical metaphor, what do lambs do? When John the Baptist stood up and got everybody ready for the Messiah and he saw Jesus and he said, there's the Lamb of God, what else did he say? There's the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sins of the world. All kinds of people are going to believe in him and he's going to take their sins away. The reason there's no judgment in heaven is not because the good people went. There are no good people. Jesus was good. Jesus is good. But there's no judgment because the Lamb took it away. God's emotionally invested. Verse 13. And you know what? Um, I, I don't know about other portions of the country, but go into an old southern cemetery. I've done this, uh, it, what is it, Springwood downtown? Um, and walked through, and many, many headstones have verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed. If they're blessed, what does that mean? It means there's a blesser. There's not just this thing flopping around that's an abstraction called blessing. And like maybe you bump into it. Heaven is blessed because there's a blesser. And I just after what we've just said, if I don't say this, I'm going to pop. It is the impulse of God to bless. And here he just, if we can put it, not that he has been stingy, but here he just lets it go. No judgment. Here we see his emotions, and it lasts forever. Now, did you catch what it said about what happens forever in hell? It says, among the other things, that the people there cannot rest. There's no rest forever. What does it say in verse 13? Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Because here's the deal. Let me ask you this. Have you reached the point in life now where you realize that no vacation can do it? Can we all agree on that? And, and here's, you know, hotels and cruise liners and, and websites have figured out how to post photos that make us feel like it can. And I can't, I can't blame them because we go. 
But I even felt this, I, I, if, if you're a visitor, I was on sabbatical summer of last year. I've, I just, I've never done anything like this in my life. I didn't have to work for three and a half months. And it was great. And when I came back, you know, people asked, well, do you just feel totally rested? And I finally had to say, well, I feel as rested as you can feel in a fallen world. Because here's the thing. Even if you take away, you know, just jobs and deadlines and just all that kind of stuff, Dana still makes me do chores. I'm just kidding. Even if you take away, even if you, take away you know, uh, deadlines and work and a sermon every week and all those kinds of things, if, if you're human, you still know that there's child trafficking. And there's human trafficking. And um, that if I'm with my friends and I'm around a table and we have had the greatest meal and I'm with the people I love and I feel so good, believe me, the people in the labor camps in North Korea don't. And I can't make that go away. And heaven, the new earth, the new earth, is the place where you can step outside and know that no one has a problem. You don't have a problem, and no one else does, and you can simply rest and enjoy. Will you be active? Of course, but you can rest down to your toes. And Jesus is the center and the delight. And boy, we've talked about this in Revelation, is that these images of heaven... Where's the party? Is the party that finally we have the ultimate banquet and it's all about the banquet. I mean, listen, how much did I love that when I was out of the pulpit, I come back and I find out that this question that Jake threw out last week when he was preaching that has just ruminated inside this congregation is, if you could have everything that heaven offers, the delights, the, the experiences, the things, without Jesus, would you want it? Thank you. Because the reason that heaven is heavenly is not that no one has a problem anymore, although that's awesome. The reason that heaven is heavenly is because He is there. And all the joy and the delight and the life flows from Him, and now it's just unobstructed. Man, He's there. And you look at Him, and He's not the Son of God angry with sinners. He's the Lamb who took away your sin. You don't ever have to worry about that. And He's delighting in you, and you're delighting in Him. That's heaven. Well, where does this leave us? Um, I want to wrap up with this. It, it brings us, as I say, you know, from time to time, it brings us great joy that people come here who are not Christians. And I would want to say are not yet Christians. But I, no one can make you do anything. And as you're hearing this, you may say, I love the description of heaven as much as I hated the description of hell. And you started out saying that we're supposed to hook this up to good news. I don't know how in the world you hook up that description of hell to good news. Before we finish, may I try? When the night before, the night that Jesus was arrested and the night before he was crucified, the apostles record that he prayed um, to God. And he prayed something three times. Prayed the same thing three times. He prayed, uh, Father, take this cup away from me. 
You remember we said there's two cups. There's the blessing and the the wrath. Which cup was he talking about? It's wrath. Why would he be drinking a cup of wrath? He's the one guy that deserved. He is the one man that deserved never to drink the cup of wrath. Why would he even be thinking he's supposed to drink a cup of wrath? Because the only way that people who deserve to drink a cup of wrath can have a cup of blessing is if someone drinks their cup for them. And it's so horrible that the one who told his disciples what he came to do, when he reaches the threshold, he's asking the Father, is there any other way we can do this? And the unrecorded answer is no. And the next day he drank it. And he drank it to the bottom where he could say on behalf of his people, it's finished. There is no cup of wrath for my people, ever. And I'll tell you something. We, you know, if, if this is you, if you say, I'm not a Christian, or I don't know what I am, I don't think I'm a Christian, the good news is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, can drink the cup with your name on it. Because do you hear us saying we all have a cup of wrath that we deserve? But do you hear why the reason we like singing about Jesus is we come together to say... He drank that cup for us. We love Him. And if, if, you, if, he, if He enables you to believe it, take Him at His word that He drinks that for you, man, then you can fear Him and worship Him. What the angel said to do. Let me end with this. If you're a Christian, you say, yeah, I believe that. And, I've, and in fact, I've heard you say this before. I'm going to share something and then I'm done. Um... I have satellite radio in my car now, so I don't do this as much now. But when I first got here, I didn't have, I didn't have satellite radio, so I just listened to like local stations. And there's one station that just, somehow I came across it, and I put the preset where I could go back to it, and it was one that just had like truly old-fashioned local preaching. And I mean like tirades about beer and the whole nine yards. And southern accents that are so thick that, I mean, like, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, compared to the people on this radio station. And so, and I don't know if you do this, but it's embarrassing to even talk about it. It makes me... uh, But I bet some of you have done this, where you flip through the channels and you come to, like, the crazy Christian channel and you watch it just to go, whew, that is wacko. whether it's what someone's doing or saying or singing or whatever. Well, I was kind of doing that, and I thought, I'm going to turn this on and see what the the tirade is this time. And this guy recognized his voice because he was like exhibit A of what I was turning it on for. Uh, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but this has made me tear up every time I have thought about it. So I turned it on to like look down on this guy, and this guy is giving his testimony in the sermon. He said, and I'll tell you what, I was stuck in the mud and the mire and I could not rescue myself. And his wrath was going to be on me. And precious Jesus reached down and he saved me when I could not save myself. And I owe him everything. And people in the congregation are saying amen. And I thought, I am so freaking condescending. Because that is it. And the deal is, 
when that is in the front of my heart, I love church. And I love the Bible. And I love to pray. And I love you. And when it's not, it all feels like a chore. There's nothing better for the person who's a Christian, maybe who's heard this for decades, to come back to square one and say, Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath for me, and it was horrible, and He gives me His cup of blessing, and it's awesome. That is the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for the good news... And for sending your Son, the Lamb of God, we give you thanks. Oh, we give you thanks. And uh, for any who are here who do not believe in Him or don't know what they believe, do for this person what you've done to so many people in this room. Give her, give him faith. Give her trust. Give him trust that Jesus can drink the cup of wrath so I may have the cup of blessing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.